Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hello, music nerds and everybody else out there. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 138 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. And we are coming to the end of season six. That's right. There's three more episodes. This one, two more after this. So it's going to be another uh, four weeks, I guess, and those will come to an end. That'll be the end of season six. Then there's going to be a little break, and season seven will start after a short break. It's already kind of underway. It's already in production, so that's happening, and I will keep you posted. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and listening. I really appreciate you being here. My guest today is the amazing guitar player and producer and songwriter. Mr. John Leventhal. I'm very excited to have John here. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while, and he's uh, a tricky guy to connect to. But a big shout out to my pal Craig Northy. Uh, Craig was on the show last season. He is a uh, wonderful musician from Vancouver, and he made the intro to John for this episode to me because uh, Craig and John are buddies and they've done some work together before and uh, Craig set me up with John. So thanks Craig, I am much grateful for that. So here in Nashville, what's going on? We're deep into the winter here and I hope it's not screwing up too many travel and touring plans for those of you out there that are on the road. I'm not really touring myself until April, thankfully, uh, but I do have a quite a bit of studio work coming up and that relies on a bunch of people getting here to work. So hopefully things will sort of settle. I know this week is going to get nasty out there again. So be careful out there if you're traveling or if you're a touring musician, 
take her easy. Don't do anything too nutty. You know what I'm talking about? Especially you Canadian people touring around out there in the snow. What else is going on? I'm putting out some new music and some live performance videos. Quite a few of those these days. We shot a whole ton of video footage a couple months back live in a studio called Hipposonic up in Vancouver. And those songs are all trickling out now, mostly on YouTube. And I also have a brand new album out or coming out called Eyes Closed Dreaming. That's coming out in March. And, uh, you know, you can look that up and have a listen. It's all easy to find. You know how to do that, people, on the Spotify and the Apple Music and whatever you do your music listening on these days. It's all there. And links to that are over at my website as well at stevedawson.ca. So a couple of reminders. One is for the Hen House Hang, which is happening here at the Hen House, my studio, September 25th through 28th this year. It's going to be a really fun four-day seminar on recording based around Roots Music, Americana, whatever you call it. All kinds of cool stuff is going to be happening over those four days while we record some songs and learn the process of recording and mixing. There's only eight spots available. There's a couple spots left, so hit me up if you're interested in finding out more. And you can get info on that whole thing at stevedawson.ca as well. And there's a link to the Hen House Hang right on the front page. And then anyone interested in, in helping out the show, if you sign up now to the Patreon page, which can be as low as just a few bucks a month, you will be entered to win this cool Union Tube and Transistor C-Verb reverb pedal. It's really cool. It's super trippy. I've been using it quite a bit and it's really fun. I am going to be giving one of these away at the end of the season, which is, you know, just a few weeks from now. So you can support the show in other ways too, but Patreon's a great way to do that. And you can get info on that over at makersandshakerspodcast.com, the home of the podcast. And of course, many thanks once again to all the Patreon supporters and donators to the show. It all really helps. And a big thank you to everyone who has left a review for us over at Apple Podcasts. There's a couple one-time donators this week as well. So thank you to Jim Franklin and Suzanne Watkins. I really appreciate you guys, and it's very helpful to keeping the show going. All right. So John Leventhal, he's a bit of a man of mystery. And I love having these folks, these kind of people on the show that, that don't have websites. They don't really have a presence out there beyond just making great cool music and john has done tons of amazing work over the years but there isn't a lot of info out there or at least easily accessible info so john first came on most people's radar as a producer and co-writer and guitarist for sean colvin that was in the late 80s and uh, he comes out of that new york studio scene that i don't know that much about because it's very new york centric but it's really different from the scene down here but like here has a lot of familiar faces who've been working on records up there for many, many, many years. And John is right in that scene, and he's been in that scene for decades. Anyway, Sean Colvin's debut album was called Steady On, and it was a big success, and John had a huge hand in making that with her. And they collaborated again in 1996 on A Few Small Repairs, which was her biggest album to date. And I'm pretty sure it's probably her biggest album ever. It had Sunny Came Home and all those big hits on it. He also made Jim Lauderdale's first record. And man, those are actually some pretty serious first records. I don't know about you guys out there, but the first records I made were really crappy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, especially for sort of a late bloomer like John, who didn't really, apparently he didn't have an electric guitar at all until he was in college. Anyway, he's made a ton of amazing records for artists like uh, Sean Colvin, of course, and William Bell, Mark Cohen, Sarah Jarose, Rodney Crowell, and of course, a whole slew of great ones with his wife, Roseanne Cash. 
He's written songs for Tedeschi Trucks, Vince Gill, George Strait, Patti Loveless, and he's racked up six Grammy Awards in the process. Not too shabby. John tours a lot with Roseanne Cash, and that's where you're likely to see him out there more than anything else. I also had the really good fortune to see him do a super cool show with Roseanne and Ry Cooter and Joaquin Cooter doing all Johnny Cash tunes. That was a pretty sweet show. I loved it. I, I don't think they did that many of them. So John has a solo record coming out, and in fact, it's his debut solo album. And it's not going to be out for a little while still, but I got my mitts on it, and it's a killer record. So we do talk about it here quite a bit, but you won't be able to hear it until the fall, probably, maybe earlier than that, I'm not sure. But watch for it. It's called Rumble Strip, under his own name, John Leventhal. And uh, he doesn't have a website as of right now, but he's on Instagram as, I think it's John N. Leventhal. So that's John N. L-E-V-E-N-T-H-A-L. So you can get little snippets of his killer playing on there. And that's about the only place you can find him. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with John Leventhal. Well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's cool I was able to track you down through my old buddy, Craig Northy there. Yeah, yeah. Small world. Yeah, indeed. Are you at home? Is that is? I am, you... yeah. Okay. So I have, uh, I don't know, around 2015-ish, I built a studio. I, so uh, I bought a townhouse in Chelsea like 27 years ago. And for many years, some reason, I thought I needed to go somewhere to work, which was, I realized, sort of foolish. The bottom line is, yeah, I have a studio on the ground floor of our townhouse here in Chelsea. So it's, it's oh, wow, just... Okay. Yeah, I, I did it six or seven years ago. I should have done it 27 years ago. Who knew? So what's the setup there? I can see a bunch of guitars and instruments. Um, uh, are you... uh, like specifically, like we, we go into gear right away? No, uh, no, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really delve into gear that much. But like, is it, a, is it one room or do you have like a little uh, bit no. of... Oh, no. So it's a, uh, it's a thousand square feet, which, you know, for New York is, isn't bad. Yeah. Ceilings could be a little higher, but... Uh, I don't know how much you heard before. So yeah, like six or seven years ago, uh, my daughter was living down here and she moved out and, uh, the lease was up on a space that I had been renting with my partner at the time. And I said, come on, let's just build a studio with what we'll pay in this lease in two or three years, we can build the studio. And that turned out to be true. And the studio is just great. I just love it. I sh like I say, I really wish I had done it two decades at least ago. And, uh, uh, so it ha I have a control room with all the gear and a lot of guitars and I, a lot of time is spent here. I work with vocalists here and stuff, but I also have a live room, um, B3, lots of guitar amps, piano, whirlies and stuff. And then I have a sort of a wood paneled hallway that's wired up. And then I have like a, a B room, a smaller room in the front. Yeah. So I have like, wow, that's pretty, yeah, that's it's pretty legit. functional. Yeah, and I've been doing I've been doing every record, any record I've done in the last six years, seven years I've done here. So, okay, it's great. I can do everything. I have string sections, horn sections. It's all good. Fantastic. Yeah. And so up to that point, like seven, whenever seven years ago or whatever, were you? Did you have a a, a permanent rental somewhere that you were working out of? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and that was in Manhattan as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you know, I've been doing this for a while. So I yeah. started with analog tape and. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, and when, uh, you know, basically when the computer thing sort of made it feasible, or yeah, actually even a step before that with ADATs, a buddy of mine uh, sort of found a studio space because uh, 
I, I had an intuition, which is, I think, essentially proved to be right that, uh, yeah, I would do better work if I had my own space and wasn't always watching the clock. And da, da, da. I mean, there's something to be said for watching the clock. We can talk about that. But in the in the grand scheme of things, for what I think that my skill set was, it was really good to have my own space. Yeah, absolutely. So that place that you had, were you sharing it with somebody or were you sharing it with a I bunch was, of people? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with a, a really good buddy of mine who has sadly passed away. His name is Rick DePoff. He passed away, sort of, he built this studio for me and then sadly passed away. Oh, man. Uh, really talented guy, super, really actually deeply musical cat, but also, you know, really sort of an autodidact when it came to electronics and recording and really knew a lot. I knew about, you know, sussed out building studio. I mean, he, he, he was a good, he was a good partner. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. filled a lot of gaps of shit that I never wanted to deal with. So it was great. <laughs> so did you have to deal with a lot of soundproofing issues living in a townhouse in Chelsea? That seems like you know, a, uh, amazing that you can pull off what you're doing there. Yeah, but not, uh, not any more than anybody else has to do. Well, first of all, I, I, I everybody in my family's a musician, so, every, so everybody understands. So that's helpful, right? Yeah. It's not like I married a, I married a neurosurgeon who has to get up at 4 a.m. every morning. So, uh, although, you know, that might have been interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's fairly well soundproofed. I mean, the live room is a room within a room, which is, you know, what in New York, anyway, is what you got to do. Even if I was in a commercial building, it's what you'd have to do. Yeah. Um, and that's great. I mean, my son's also in the biz. He does what I do. He's quite talented and he, he's quite busy and he's been working here a lot too. I mean, we, and he, he plays a lot harder and louder than I do. <laughs> so, uh, we hear it, that it doesn't, you know, man, it just doesn't bother us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not allowed, you know, pretty the years have gone on. I, I noticed that, uh, you know, the amps get softer and, you know, every, my touch gets lighter. So the compression gets lighter. So there you go. <laughs> Have you got into any of those, like like the aux or anything like that, that allow you to record electrics? Nah, nah, I never cared for. I never cared about any of that stuff. I have great amps, and you know, you know, I whatever. Not to make. I really don't want to end up sounding like okay, boomer. Although, would be totally a legitimate, you know, uh, you know, comment about myself. No, but you know, I started basically by having a guitar and a cable, and you plug it into an amp, and you know, tried to make music. So uh, that's what I'm comfortable with. I totally get and appreciate that cats can make great sounds out of it and do sessions. That's fine. It's totally cool. It's just not, I'm just not that interested in it. So I understand completely. This new record of yours. Can we talk about that? Like what's the situation with it? When's it coming out? Uh, I don't have a release date, you know, so I sort of just decided to pull the trigger on this a couple of months ago. So much to my surprise, the entire industry isn't sort of like dancing to my tune. So, uh, (laughs) I think I have a place to release it. I, you know, it's just everything takes time. So, I mean, if I just kind of wanted to put it out there, sure, I could put it out there next week. But I think, you know, I may have found like a label and I'm looking for a publicist. And stuff. Ah, you know, I, if I went through all the trouble of doing it, I might as well release it in some sort of semi-coherent way. So um, <laughs> it'll be out this year, uh, probably in the second half of the year. Okay. Well, you know, I've sent it to... A bunch of my friends so it's also also of course the problem with that is that i thought i was done and now i'm right before you and i talked i noticed i was recording one more tune that i think oh, I really <laughs> jam on there so we'll see what happens yeah. so do you want to do you want to talk about it or do you want to keep that project under wraps for now because this this will probably come out in february so i mean no man let's talk about it let's talk, look just 
I like talking about music. You can we can talk All about right. my record. We can talk about other records. Talk well, about records I've done. Talk about records that we love. I don't care. It's all good to me, man. Let's let's talk about all that stuff. But but um, I did like you sent me the record, and it's called Rumble Strip, and yeah. and I'd love to talk to you about it because I think it's a fantastic record. Thank um, you. Yeah, people will be a little in the dark because they won't be able to hear it probably until a few months after this comes out. But screw them. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if that's good marketing to say screw them, but say, we love you. We hope you'll like it. This will just whet their appetite for months on end. Hopefully. Um, yeah. But can you tell me a bit about how you did this record? Like, I think you play, I, I did see the, the credits. There's a PDF that, that you sent me with it that have credits. And it seems like you played pretty much everything, maybe aside from some horns or something. So I assume that was all done in your place there? Sure. All the like I didn't even know that you played piano really, but there's some really beautiful keyboard stuff on there that it, that um, that piano that kicks the record off. Um, what's the song called? Um, uh, oh, Floyd Kramer's uh, Dream. Floyd Kramer's Dream. Yeah. Uh, what a crazy sound that is. Is yeah. that piano? Is that piano detuned or something? No, but it has a uh, felt mute in it, which is okay. pretty wacky. Yeah. Yeah. And if you put the mic pretty far away, and the felt mute just you know starts to create something that's kind of weird. Um, you know, man, I mean, I, I, it's not, I didn't do it in any big radical way differently I, in over the last, let's say decade. Oh man, what is the short winded answer here? You know, when I first started making records, I sort of did it the way that most people do it, which is hired a bunch of musicians, went into a studio. Sometimes I would play, sometimes I wouldn't play. Quite often I had written the tune and, you know, so I, I, and I had done probably done demos that had some sort of compelling thing for me, hopefully in the artist. And, um, you know, and so I did that process. This is all sort of pre-home or pre-releasable home recording technology. I actually had a Tascam 4-track and I had a Tascam 8-track. So I was making demos. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I started shifting uh, – I've always had a facility on instruments. And then, of course, I've basically spent the last, not quite half century, but, you know, moving toward a half century in recording studio. So I've, I've been around a lot of instruments and I, it's in my nature to make noise on them and stuff. And, you know, I have an understanding of harmony and all this. So it's, you know, so I can, like you said, you didn't, I didn't know you play keyboards. Well, I'm not a particularly adept keyboard player, but I, but I have, but I understand music. And so I, I, I understand things to do on the piano that to me are musical. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not sitting there being Keith Jarrett or Bruce Hornsby, but you know, I understand I have kind of an, a harmonic understanding and I know how to like pluck it out and sort of create music that for me has some feeling. So yeah, I play a lot of instruments and over the years, so that's a long winded way of saying yes, over the years I've noticed on records, I'm, I play a lot of the instruments now. Was it a conscious choice to do that? Yes, at one point it was, and I've just kind of flowed with it. And I don't know if it's better than having session cat. I mean, this is, for me, a potentially deep, complicated conversation about hiring musicians or not hiring musicians and what it means and what musicians bring to recording sessions and music and preconceived ideas and everybody, including myself, brings ideas that have worked in the past. And sometimes for me, when I play everything, I force myself not to do what's worked in the past just because I am not 
it doesn't appeal to me all that much to repeat my ideas all the time. I, I understand. Right. So it's a little bit of a head game. You know, I have a, a strong internal critic. I try to pay attention to it. I try not to have it like, you know, depress me or anything, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's just all, it's a high wire act, man. I'm balancing knives and spoons and, and sure. guitars and, and, you know, just trying to make music that feels meaningful and has some emotional content and it, it doesn't feel like I'm just rehashing either my ideas or somebody else's ideas. You know, you don't always get it, but it's sort of the, it's sort of the fuel that moves me forward. I've noticed. Anyway, the bottom line is I've been doing a lot where I've been playing everything and, you know, sort of stuck here during the pandemic. So I really had no choice. And this sort of making this solo record was sort of, you know, some ways looming over me for a few years because I noticed as the years go by, you know, I tend to write with a lot of artists and there's just so many ideas that never find a home and I ain't getting any younger. And the pandemic came. So it was almost like a sign that I couldn't ignore, which is, well, dude, you know, it's time. If you're, yeah. If you're going to do it, you need to confront it. So I confronted it and, you know, I recorded probably four. I wrote, I mean, I just, I write all the time. So it's not like I sat down, I'm going to write for my solo record. I'm always writing. So I just, and, you know, writing is one thing, but making a record that's your statement, like with me as the artist, was a little weird, was weird for me because I'm incredibly comfortable, you know, producing and writing for and, and working behind and arranging for other people. But, you know, when it was like, well, what is it you really have to say that has any, that's worthwhile in any way? That was a little challenging. For me. Anyway, the bottom line is I wrote, wrote a bunch of stuff, got rid of a good portion of it, kept what you heard. And I, I thought, well... This has got something and whatever it is, I don't know what it all adds up to, but it's me. So there you go. I would imagine that, that there, you know, you, as you mentioned, you're sort of a, a tough critic on yourself. You've had a career that's like 40 to 50 years at this point, And this is the first time you've done a solo record. That's a lot yeah. of, that's a lot of pressure, man. Uh, do you think you would have? I felt it. it. <laughs> yeah, Do you think I you really would have created, done this? I really created sort of an existential like vortex yeah. for myself to like, no doubt. yeah, make myself feel miserable for sure. Yeah. There was Do you think that this would have happened if the pandemic hadn't hadn't sort of brought forth this time to to dive in and and focus on your own stuff? It's a really good question. I don't, I don't really have the answer, but I suspect it's possible it wouldn't have. I okay. mean, it really, it was, I mean, I regret that it took an international painful crisis <laughs> to motivate me to do the thing that I knew in a kind of, not to get too sort of highfalutin, but there was sort of a spiritual element to like just confronting this and doing it and following through on it and releasing it. It's just sort of something I understood for myself that I just needed to do to show myself that I could do it. Now, why hadn't I done it earlier? Because I'm not a compelling singer. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to, if I, if I had to sit through it, like 12 songs of me singing, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, um, you know, I had to, I mean, I sing on every record I produce pretty much, but I never, it's never been like, here's Leventhal, he's going to sing, you know? So, um, you know, it took me, a, it took a little bit of, experimenting and understanding um, to sort of figure out what I was comfortable to hear myself singing. Now, why did I bother to sing? It was just another thing where it's just like, just do it, Matt. Like, it was just a thing I needed to do. I think it sounds great. Yeah. Well, thanks. I had, I had some great collaborators, so that always helps. So 
That does help, yeah. yeah. So um, on something like the title track, Rumble Strip, it's a real groove piece. And that's something that I think is kind of a hallmark of your productions too, is like real strong groove. Like I know that for you, um, you know, things that you've probably been influenced by is like, you know, country and soul and R&B and blues and funk and Motown and all this stuff. And, and I hear that in what you're doing, but not like directly. And on a tune like that, it's, it's very groove based. And I'm really curious how you, first of all, wrote a song like that by yourself and then how you did, like, what was the process for you for recording? Did you do the drums first or was it like a guitar first thing or what was that, what was that process like? <laughs> um, well, there was amber fluid involved. Okay. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> well, you know, the pandemic was a weird, you know, it was weird. And our kid, our youngest kid was in college. So it was just me and Roseanne were here in, here in the house. So, and she would tend to go to bed early and, you know, I gave myself license to sort of, I mean, part, like a song like that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about this. I'll be shocked if anybody gives a shit, but. Oh, they'll give a shit. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, a song like, like part of it for me was, like I say, I've been making, I've been producing records for a long time. And I have, I have within me a tendency to want to orchestrate and organize and arrange. Like it's just part of my musical DNA. Like there's a thing in me and I'm in it. And it's a good thing because I think it's in part what led me to being a record producer, right? Which is I have an arranger sensibility. So I'm sort of wired to take music and try to organize it. And now that I've been making records for so long, I'm wired to take it in and organize it as a record. Like, Oh, how can you make a record out of this? You know? So part of this, this quote unquote solo record, and particularly the track you're talking about, it's, it's, it's part of this thing. It's hard for me to quite articulate it, but of this thing that I don't want to repeat myself and trying to put myself in situations where I don't get to rely on my old standbys. And mm -hmm. so that's what that song was. It wasn't written. It was like, I came down, I poured myself a whiskey. I started playing a little, the incredibly simple two note guitar thing. And I was like, Oh, that has so much space to it. And Oh, well the space could groove. And then I heard the groove in my head. I, I, so the way my studio is constructed or wired is that when we built it, the only thing I said was, I just want pretty much everything ready to go. Whoa, sorry about that. It's a track I'm working. So, at any moment, I can. I have mics. I have two beautiful 67s for vocals and acoustic Ooh. guitars. I have other mics for acoustic guitars literally right next to me. I have my P bass setup. I have an upright like 10 feet away in the live room. I have the drum set. Everything's mic'd. Everything has their own discrete pre. There's a signal chain to every mic, and I can just flip a switch and I can go in and play drums just like that. Like if you were to say, go play drums right now, I just walk in and record drums. I didn't, I wouldn't have to spend eight minutes, nine minutes, 12 minutes, 13 minutes setting it up. You right. know, the only thing I might have to do is, oh, you know, maybe I should turn the compression down on the overheads or whatever, because they're hitting too hard. So, so basically in that tune, I found one incredibly simple riff, I guess the riff that starts it. And I said, oh, I like that. And I heard the groove and I went and what I did is I went and played it, probably played 16, 32 bars found you know the eight bars that felt good because i didn't want to spend a lot of time i didn't want to lose i didn't want to lose i didn't want to get analytical about it. that's part of my thing like a lot of my work is i don't i do 
my best work if I avoid getting analytical and arrangement oriented too soon, right? Because I know I have that skill set. They can always okay. go. So I just I found a little groove, boom, 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 boom. I just chopped it up. So that feels good. Four, it's probably four bars. Chopped it up, looped it. And then I just started to turn the, you know, turn the computer on and rolled, turned the mics on. Uh, I think it was a nylon string guitar, put a little reverb on it. And I just play for like 10 minutes. And you know, 80% of this, 80% of what I thought should be there was there. I think maybe I had to go back and create a little segue section to get the theme to come back at the end. But that was, that's the easy part. And then I just played a second guitar. I was like, oh, this is good. You know, I probably played, you know, it's like, you know, sure. Sometimes I get lucky and it's all the first take, but you know, it was probably <laughs> a couple of two or three takes and I comped the best of it. Yeah. And, uh, and then I probably played upright and, and I, I think on that, I decided I like, I was going to, well, now I should go back and play the drums for real and play all the hits. And I said, nah, I like it. It was a kind of a trance-like thing. So that worked for me too. And it was done. Boom. Awesome. That probably, I probably got most of it down in one night, probably took three hours, maybe four hours. And then, you know, I probably cleaned it up the next day and that's what you hear. So it's a, that's a pretty efficient process. It sounds like were you, yeah, it's not always efficient like that. <laughs> well, if I, because it wasn't written, it it felt natural, if that makes yeah, sense. As totally. opposed to something I'm composing, I'm like, oh, no, that chord's wrong. You know, I got it. that chord's just not working or whatever. So. so are there some songs on the record that are more like that, where where you kind of struggled with them or like spent oh. way more time? Yeah. Well, the ones okay. I really struggled with, you're not, you, you don't get to hear. Right. Because <laughs> I hate them. Um, sure, man, there's tons. I mean, I'd have to... I don't have the song list in front of me, but sure, there's tons of song. Like, there's that. If, yeah, someone's if someone's gonna hang you up, is it like the lyrics or more of a guitar part or a melody or where's your what's your Achilles heel as a writer? You if know, you have Steve, one, it's it's not it's not black and white like that for me. And I, okay. I don't I don't experience it like that. I can't. I, I don't experience music like that. I don't know. It's just all. It's just whether. I mean, it just sounds corny, but I think for me anyway, it's true. It's just, does it feel substantially compelling? Does it feel worthwhile? I mean, I mean, we're living in a time sort of, um, I don't want to say this with all humility because there's so many talented people. You know, it's like everybody's kind of learned how to build the house, man. You know, it's like there's a lot of music out there and everybody has some mad skill sets on every level, recording, playing, chops, you know, writing, I mean, grooves. It's like, um, so it's just a question of like, if it feels worthwhile to me or whether it feels like, well, I did this because I could do it. And it's not bad, you know, but it, I mean, dare I say, it's like, I guess, I guess what it is looking just for some little spark of magic and what i feel is magic the next person may not feel it mm -hmm. i don't know but for me like i say i have this sort of internal barometer or critic whatever you want to call it and it's just basically looking for what i feel is a little bit of real feeling or magic you know i get it that's I get it. it so on a piece like tullamore blues which is another one off the new record um yeah. what, dra what draws me into to that is like the overall sound and the texture of of the guitar or guitars and there's yeah. a really mysterious quality to it. Like I've, you know, I'm I'm a guitar player, and I can pick out what's what usually. But like, it definitely sounds like an acoustic guitar. But then there, it also sounds like an electric guitar, and there's a tiny bit of tremolo going on on there. So, what's going on? And in, in is that is that a textural like 
multiple guitar thing that I'm not hearing distinctly different guitar parts or how are you uh, doing all that stuff? I think on that, of course I could be proof right. I'd have to go listen to it. Um, I actually haven't listened to this in a bit. I think Tullamore Blues was pretty straight ahead. It's, but you are hearing this thing you're describing on many other tunes, which I will then I will now explain to you. I've explained to it. I've explained it in a lot of interviews. So I, I do feel like I'm repeating myself. But I think Tullamore Blues is pretty straight ahead. It's just once again that was composed on the spot, and I have a really nice. Well, actually, I don't even know if it's nice. It's just a beat to hell L double O. Okay. That I haven't changed the strings on well over a decade. <laughs> You know, so if I play it with my thumb and I play it lightly and the mics are wide open, it just sort of seems to have a character. Yeah. And on a song like that, for me, it's sort of like, I think what I'm doing is sort of the opposite of what most people are doing lately, which is I'm I'm trying not to fill a lot of space. Mm -hmm. Right. So some of these tunes on this record, not all, but some of them are me you know, consciously playing with space and letting the space between the notes have some purpose. Now that sounds kind of highfalutin, but that's actually, actually the way I think about it, you know? So uh, I think on Tullamore Blues, I think it's pretty straight ahead. I just think it's uh, one acoustic guitar plays the melody in the first half. And then I play my, on a Telecaster, I play the melody in the second half. I think okay. it's pretty Straight ahead, I think. Where's the tremolo coming in then in the acoustic guitar sound? Uh, is there... God, on that track, I'd have to listen to it. Okay, so, uh, well, this will be interesting. And like I say, I don't think there's tremolo in that track, but then again, really? it could be wrong. Or, man, I don't know, I could do anything. I mean, I'm not above... <laughs> it's sending subtle. A, I'm not above sending a signal, like sending a, you know, a signal from the guitar track to some reverb. And then I'm not above taking that reverb and putting the reverb through tremolo. I mean, I've done Maybe that. Maybe that's what it is then. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely process reverb, turn off high end, change the pans. Um, yeah, I'll do something so that it's almost more of a psychoacoustic phenomenon than you're going like, oh, there's the tremolo on the guitar. Uh, but on a lot of other tracks, like if you listen closely, um, particularly the solo acoustic guitar tracks, like I've been doing this thing forever, which is... I have a sound hole pickup in a lot of my acoustics. And I just run that through some pedals, a little delay, a little tremolo into a Fender amp in the other room. And I just sort of blend that behind the acoustic signal just to sort of give it a little kinetic energy. So, and, and not, not trying to make it sound lo-fi or anything bullshit like that, but just sort of to give it just a little energy, just a little yep. something. Well, so it's not just, yeah, not just, oh, beautiful acoustic guitar sound. Not that there's anything wrong with a beautiful acoustic guitar sound, but there you go. So when you're doing solo acoustic stuff in your place and you're engineering it, are you just sitting there in front of your computer or do you go back into another oh, room? and like this. No, okay. I'm literally sitting in this space. I've got, well, you can't see it, but I've got a world of microphones here. Oh, uh, let's, let's see it. Oh, well, look at that. Yeah. So, well... You know, many years ago, before I, I had my own studios, I used to work a lot at Sear Sound. I don't know if you know about Sear Sound or Walter Sear in New York. It's a great little studio. I was there forever. Walter was amazing. Uh, a lot of great anecdotes. Uh, I cut Sonny, came home there, whatever. Walter actually helped me 
get my mic collection. He's no longer with us anymore. But the one thing Walter, uh, uh, you know, mentioned was like, you know, put some plastic bags on those mics when you're not using them. Dust will kill them, you know? So I've been putting plastic bags. I make my son here. It's like, if I don't see the plastic, pours the plastic bag. You know? <laughs> Particularly on the, on like the good mics on the 67s. Yeah. Like yeah. So, so yeah, so I stay, I basically hang right here and, and do pretty much everything. I, I haven't heard it yet, but I know you did an interview with Sarah. She'll tell you how she'll, she refers to it as my spaceship where I'm, I basically stay in this one chair and, pretty much except for the drums i can get everything done so production wise like a very like sweeping gen- generalization through your entire career you've kind of seen the whole gamut of like the industry like when you started making records it would have been in the late 80s and there was you know budgets were different studios were different the mentality yeah. of recording was way different um yeah. do you have any kind of general feelings about the job of being a music producer and how it's changed for you over the years? Cause that's, those are some drastic shifts. And I'd like to talk specifically about some of those early records too, and how you got into it in the first place. But now that you're here making them at home, it's, it's a whole, a completely different vibe from how you would have started. Uh, yeah. Do you find that yeah. exciting and, and interesting or is it like, I don't know, how, how does that strike you as a, as a person deeply involved in it? Yeah, this is, it's a good conversation and it's worthy of me being, mildly articulate and i'm not sure i can be but let's see because it, it goes to a fairly deep place of me um and i really really don't want to say anything that feels you know cranky old man or i don't because i see the validity i see the validity in whatever time i'm working in right yeah even the 80s which I, I was i always felt out of place in the 80s even though it's when i started i always felt I never felt connected to the music in the eighties. So I see the validity of what everybody's doing. Okay. What, what is the thing? Well, first of all, as I mean, look, man, we could go down a, a rabbit hole here. There's just so much more product now. That's just off the charts. It's just everybody, you know, people are born with computers in their fingers and, you know, guitars on their laps by the time they're three. And, you know, people can make records, you know, pretty quickly. My son who happens to be really talented. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I, of course I'm proud of him. And I I probably wouldn't say that out loud of it. I didn't think he was. He's talented. And, you know, he's, you know, he, he kind of got the gist of it when he was like 18, right? Uh, he's 24 now. So he, he's got the grasp of it. Um, and um, so there's a lot more out there. When I first started, I made my living as a record producer. That's what I did for a living. I was also a songwriter, luckily, and I played on, you know, I did sessions and stuff, although primarily I think when people think of me, they think of me as a record producer. Yeah. Um, I don't make my living as a record producer anymore. So that in some fundamental way is the main difference. And, and because I don't make my living as a record producer, it has lots of tentacles and permutations about how I feel about it practically, how I feel about it musically, how I feel about it spiritually. You know, um, so there's very, I mean, I've made in the last five, six years records that I think have been very well received, won Grammys, um, but I didn't really make any money on them right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not, this is not about money, man. It's just about trying to understand who you are, where you are, what you're doing, what's valuable, what do you want to do? What's meaningful to you? You know, and luckily I'm in a position where maybe I have at this point, 
because I've had a long career, I've had a certain degree of success. I have, I have choices, maybe choices other people don't have. Lucky yep. me, lucky me, no question of that. But um, so I just, what's changed for me is I don't feel compelled to just produce just for the sake of producing because it's what it's it's what I do. You know, I go out with my wife. We have a band, we have a great band. We also do a lot of shows as a duo. We go out with a duo for a weekend. I make more than I make playing a record, even a record, a mildly well-budgeted record. So it just sort of reorients my priorities. And, and basically what it reorients into is like, I just really want to make good music. I love making records, but um, I mean, I took a couple of years off because I needed to confront my solo record, yeah. which was quite a journey. And then luckily, Roseanne and I got hired to write a score for a musical. So I haven't actually produced a record since Sarah Jarosa's record, which was right before the pandemic. So it was at 2020. So over two years, I haven't produced a record. And now I can see that I'm drifting back to it because I miss it. But I want to mm -hmm. just make, I want to make records that I like that are moving to me, not just to do it as a gig. If so that's, that's the, that's the basic change. I don't do it as a gig anymore. I do it like, because it's just an opportunity to really make some good music. So do you turn a lot of stuff down? I can't say my phone. I mean, there was a minute, uh, I think, you know, no, my phone's not burning up. Do I turn stuff down? Yeah. But it's not like I'm getting called like every other day to produce records. I mean, I get called but for sure, but it, no, I don't turn a lot down. I turn some stuff down. I'm trying to keep an open mind about it too. You know, it's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, not just, I'm forcing myself not to stay in a box. that would be very easy for me to stay in because I like my box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like Obviously. my, 19, I mean, I'm very heavily influenced by 1960s and early 1970s music. I'm incredibly influenced by it and it's comfortable. I like it. But, you know, I try to put a little bit of effort into not just getting stultified into like this thing. I don't know, man. You know what I mean, right? I do. So, yeah. so with the, the Sarah Jarosz thing is interesting because obviously like she's coming to you as an established artist. Uh, that's the kind of project that would have at least a budget to work in a, you know, a, in a big studio and that kind of thing. But you opted to do it at your at your in your home studio, obviously, because you're yeah. comfortable and all your all your gear is there. And I totally get that. Do you ever like, what would it take to, to get you into a, a, a big studio in New York or LA or something these days to make a record? Or would you just not do that anymore? An interesting question. I don't, I don't think it would take much. It would just take the right artist and the right project with a vision for how it would be worthwhile to go into a big studio with a certain other set of players other than myself or my super core group of people in New York. It would, it would just take the right project. It just hasn't come to me. I mean, I haven't, I'm not like super active searching for it. I mean, I have one idea for a big project that there's just no universe in which it could be done here. And I, I don't, um, and What's it's that? big. And it, uh, <laughs> I, I almost hesitate to talk about it because I'm not sure it's going to happen, but it, it would be a big project require like, a, a you know, at least a small string orchestra and some horns and, you know, and my vision would be to do it on the floor, night late fifties style, and um, and and do it that way. I mean, I would have to have the arrangements like really together, and I'd have to really. I've actually been subtly looking for the right session players for about five years to do this. It's not actually that easy to do no, this thing. I want to do right. So, and yeah, that's another thing. It's like session players. I'm not super knowledgeable about the current crop 
so I probably shouldn't weigh in on any level, but it seems there's a kind of different aesthetic now um, as a result of computers and particularly in Nashville, the way records tend to be made. And I mean, I'm still very much coming from, can you create a part like, like, or, or like, okay, I get, get all this noodling and stuff, but I don't want to sit here for 90 minutes trying to sort through your noodling to see if I can create a part. So I mean that I don't I mean whatever one of my skill sets hopefully I think I pre I think <laughs> is that I can recognize when somebody's playing something like oh that's good let's uh -huh. ca capture that little two bar up let's make it can you complete the phrase it's a four bar phrase nice let's get it nice and tuned get your time sit back boom 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 hey play that over here too like that that's the way my mind works and I notice I notice that that seems a little more challenging for cats these days. Like a lot of cats aren't quite wired for that and they get frustrated. Whereas I feel like when I started, if you couldn't do that, you didn't work. Period. End of story, right? It's like end of story. I mean, I've played on whatever. I'm not saying just to name drop. You know, I played on this Edie Brickell record that Paul Simon produced. You know, it's like, and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, that... It, I mean, <laughs> you had to be able to like focus and organize your shit. Or yeah. I played a Bruce Hornsby record once, you know, like where we spend a day on like a 12 bar, you know, just like, you know, really like getting, nailing the bad boy. So um, I think that that aesthetic and maybe to a certain degree, it's good, but um, I don't know, man. It's like, I try not to judge it. I just think I have a certain aesthetic and I'd have to find the right group of cats to roll down the road with me. They're out there, man. I just, you know, just, yeah. just lazy, just having fun. <laughs> um, okay. So can we go back to like your early days? Cause I, that's something that there's very little information out there on. I would imagine as a kid, you played in bands and I don't know if you did touring and stuff, but you're, when you first come out of the gate, you come out swinging because you're, you produce a record that's super successful for Sean Colvin. I think that's as far as yeah. I can tell, that's the first record you produced, right? Yeah, it so is. So tell me, like, I, I guess, like, first of all, what got you into music in the first place, but, like, what led you to that path of producing? Were you were you doing a ton of sessions and stuff that that are just sort of under the radar, or how did you get into that racket in the first place? No, good questions. Uh, I'm going to try to be super succinct because we're really talking about, like, a 10-year period. Yeah. Uh, before I make that record with Colvin. So... Uh, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. I didn't buy my first electric guitar in my senior year of college. Whoa. What yeah. were you in college you know, for? Uh, for absolutely no reason at all. <laughs> um, I studied literature at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, you know, man, look, where I grew up, there wasn't a clear path to becoming a professional musician or certainly not a professional pop, rock, country, Americana you know, to my parents, I was an alien. I mean, I love my parents. They loved me, but they never could understand what the hell was going on. Where were, where, where did you grow up? Where were you? I grew up in right outside of the Manhattan. I grew up like 20 miles north here. Oh, okay. And uh, so for me, like a lot of other people, I mean, I, I've said this too in interviews, but so I'm going to try to make it quick. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's the Beatles. Like I, the Beatles hit. I hear Love Me Do. I hear I'll Be Back. And I'm transported. And it's a not transported in anything remotely like an analytical way, I'm transported. It's magic. It's just, I'm feeling things I don't understand. I feel yearning. I, I want to hear it again. It becomes infused into who I am and, and every part of my life. I can't, it's not like I'm sitting there trying to understand it. It just is. And everything changed. Um, but I didn't quite have the scope at that time, the talent, 
or anything around me to indicate that I could somehow parlay that. Yeah, right. become that. It just it, it's hard to explain unless you kind of grew up where I did at the time. I did. Did you have a- ambitions to be like a in a rock band that was super successful or not? No, really? I'm kind of. I don't. I think maybe I'm kind of weird. It's like no, I didn't. I mean, <laughs> I think I secretly, as I got in, as I went to college. Well, first of all, I wasn't that. I wasn't very talented. <laughs> so I've never been. I mean. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not delusional about myself. I, I, you know, like I said, I have a very strong internal critic. I had it when I was 14, too. It's not like I've developed it. So I knew I wasn't talent. I mean, I knew I didn't have what needed to be had. I mean, that was clear to me. I'd go here, you know, the band's playing around in my hometown or whatever. And it's like, man, I love them all. But I knew, like, I wasn't good enough to play in them. But that's not true, probably. Like, no, how, how is, is that true. possible? It is true. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when it when it happened. All right. I'll, the short here's the short version. I think I said this. Gave this whole sad story to Zach Childs in one of his interviews. Basically, the bottom line is I was going to college. I really didn't have any vision for my future. Uh, I'm, I was going to probably apply to law school. I would have been a friggin' miserable lawyer. Uh, and I decided to take a year off. I bought an electric guitar. I knew nothing nothing about guitars. I bought an ES-335 and the want, you know, in the back nice. page of the Madison newspaper for 140 bucks. Why did I buy it? I bought it probably because I saw the shape and BB played it and I didn't know, you know, it's like, oh, okay. okay. Long story short, I took a year off and that year has turned out to be close to 50 years. So it was the best, <laughs> best decision I've ever made. Best year life. of your life. <laughs> yeah. So I played around with some friends, went out, Colorado and tried to be, you know, a band, you know, like we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing. And at some point I'm playing and I'm starting to get, I'm, I'm, you know, playing guitar and I'm starting to pay attention and I'm starting to listen to it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like starting to get this general idea of like what you need to do to become a better guitar player. And then the realization, oh God, they're session guitar players. And, you know, all this is starting to come into me as I'm sitting in Colorado. So after two years, I said, well, I'm going to go move back home. And I moved back home, lived with my parents for a couple of years, miserable couple of years. However, within the first year, uh, I, I just had a big birthday party. And it, we had a lot of people here, 62 people. And part of why I wanted to do that is that I'm astonished at my life. I'm astonished at the sequence of things that have happened to me that have just, if I hadn't met A, I wouldn't have met B, I wouldn't have met C, wouldn't have met, C, you know, ultimately not meeting my wife and having my kids and just like that, that kind of thing. I was really lucky. There was a guy in my hometown. His name was Billy Vera. He's still alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had this band, Billy and the Beaters in LA. Sure. In the 80s. But I'm talking mid, I'm talking like mid, mid, late 70s here. And he worked all the time. He lived in the same town that you grew up in? Yeah, he lived, he lived in, I lived in his county, Westchester County. Okay. which is literally right next door to New York City. And he had, he had a band. He worked all the time. I was the kid in the band, and I wasn't very good. But the band was great. Bass player was phenomenal. It was this guy named Tommy Woke. became T-Bone Woke. T-Bone Woke, yeah. And SNL. He was a really good friend of mine. And he was really, really good musician. And so I learned a lot. Played in that band for two and a half, three three years. And we, we didn't play for audiences. We played for people to dance in bars. And they did dance. And Billy was amazing. And we played from every conceivable genre of music there was. Old rock and roll, old R&B, soul, country music, jump band stuff. It was everything. And it was a little bit where I understood what I needed to do in order to be good. 
and Billy split. And then really almost right away, I met Sean Coleman. And I met another extraordinary group of musicians because uh, I had moved to Manhattan and, and who was in Manhattan? Larry Campbell, Tony Garnier has okay. played with Dylan forever, Colden, yep. Buddy Miller, Jim Lauderdale. So they're, God damn, I'm so sorry. This track keeps going. I can, actually, let me quit. Sorry. My little Burt Backrack track. Hold on. Was there sort of like a like an open mic scene or something? Or like, where did you meet Sean Colvin? No, no, there was just a lot of places to play, man. Okay. You know, there was just tons of clubs in the city in the 80s. Tons, lots. Yep. I worked four or five nights a week. I made more playing in clubs in the 80s than any you guys make now. You know, I worked for $100, $150 a night. I was working four or five nights a week in the 80s. My rent was $240 a month. I was, Amazing. It was fine. And then I started, and then you do that and you start doing sessions. I did a million demo sessions. I went out on the road with this guy, Steve Forbert. On, he's oh, yeah. probably still around, yeah. So, but, okay, so how, how, how did the session thing come about? Like, that doesn't just you know, fall just into like people's lives. It comes about lives. for anybody. Like, anybody uh, just playing around. And, you know, there was a million, at, at that point, there was tons of studios in Manhattan. They're not okay, anymore. right. You know, and just playing everything. But, the, but apart from the session thing, Steve, the, I think the thing that was slightly different for me was... At the same time I was doing all this, I was always writing songs. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. Like part and parcel with learning how to be a musician and be in a band, I was writing songs. I've, I've said this in an interview, too. It's like the first three chords I learned on the guitar. Great. I learned the three chords and I wrote a song with them. 
And I feel like whatever it is that I have as a musician, I don't know, whatever my touch or sensibility is, it's that I, I've always been, I think I have, I'm better at coming up with a compelling chord sequence than playing hot, interesting licks. Like that's just kind of who I am. So that's always served me well because it let me understand what, my role was in any situation I was in, as opposed to, you know, which we probably all recognize. There's just a lot of cats who just want to play. They're just going to play, yeah. and, you know, and that was never my thing. My thing was always to kind of hold back and look for cracks and find a moment and craft a two note thing that I could repeat. And I was just always wired to do that. So anyway, the bottom line is like anybody else, I just was writing songs, playing a lot doing sessions. I met Colvin and Lauderdale and I wrote songs with both of them over the course of a few years. And then, um, both with Sean and Jim toward the mid eighties, we started to find our voices as writers. Like I think with Sean and I, I've said before, like in the beginning, like maybe we were like thinking like, Oh, let's write some kind of hit, but we were never meant to do that. And then we both started finding our voice. And I, I had a little demo set up. I had a little Task M8 track. I'd make the demos. And then eventually those demos got around. Colvin got a deal. I produced that. And Lauderdale got a deal. And I ended up co-producing that. And that was it. All of a sudden, I was a record producer. It wasn't as though for all this decade building up to that moment that I was like, man, I really want to be a record producer. No, I just wanted to be a good musician and I wanted to write songs. And if the opportunity came for me to arrange and or produce the songs I wrote, then I'd be really happy. And that's kind of all I really ever wanted to do. It seems to me kind of odd that in that era, like the late 80s, that they would give someone like you a crack at producing a a record for a newly signed artist. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, the demos are pretty good. Okay. Yeah, I got to say... For both those guys, the demos are pretty good. In fact, a lot of time on those first two records was spent in big, expensive studios with session players trying to recapture the magic of the demos, which was right. something I made note of, right? right? As I went along, it's like, hmm, if there's a way to capture the initial magic on the demos and be able to release them. So it, the technology had not quite caught, was not quite there then, but eventually it did. Um, I, I think I, I, you know, I'm not patting myself in the back the demos were pretty good <laughs> and uh they were i mean i don't want to say they were undeniable but they were probably undeniable and of course colvin was amazing and lauderdale in his own way his own goofy way was amazing yeah <clears throat> they're both, both fantastic artists. yeah and uh you know so was it a situation where like sean colvin and jim lauderdale signed deals and it was like you had the gig or did you have to kind of like fight for it or did you have to sell yourself to anybody or did well, it just well, organically you know, those, happen? The, the, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my memory cells are not all intact. With Jim, it was easy. Um, it was it was too easy because uh, Rodney Crowell heard the demo and wanted to produce them. And then he's like, well, who did the demos? And Jim said, well, you know, my buddy John. And I think Sean's record had already been out, so he clocked the two and he said, well, John, let's have John produce it with us. So I co-produced it with Ronnie. So that was pretty easy. And uh, the thing with Sean, no, it wasn't like immediately. It's a, it's a complicated story how he ended up producing it. Um, there's a one or two kind of 
dumbass music business, unpleasant things. And I don't want to say anything bad about anybody. So let's just say <laughs> that, no, it wasn't, they weren't falling over themselves to give me the gig, but eventually okay. it made sense for me to get the gig. And, you know, it worked out. I, w- I was definitely the guy to do it. it, it I had yeah. written them, you know, it's like I had already arranged it on the demo. So, it was so fun. had some people been hired and fired before you had the gig? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sort of. It's cops had to do with their management company. And, okay. Uh, it was complicated. Yeah. Not um, working yet. That's a good example of a record that that sounds really timeless, especially considering that it was 1980, whatever it was, 88, 89. And a lot of stuff sounds kind of shitty and dated from that era. Where was the bulk of that record done? And and give me an idea of how long it took to make a record like that. Wow. Uh, it probably took a while this is this is steady on is the record. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I don't remember. It, it was re- it was cutted at several different studios. We were really sort of it, a little bit. It was a, a little bit guerrilla warfare to find places we could get in because it wasn't Why? as though it wasn't as though we had the whole thing mapped out. We really block booked the place for four weeks and went in and did it. That kind of thing I would do later, but it, not for steady on. Okay. Um. Oh man, you know it's complicated. Sean and I were a couple and we were breaking up. I mean, the whole thing was sort oh, of okay. fraud. Okay. Yeah. The whole <laughs> yeah, thing that's... was sort of fraud. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of it. At that point, there were these satellite rooms that the Hit Factory had. One was on 42nd Street. We did a bunch of it there. We did a bunch of the tracking there. We didn't do all the overdubs there. Um, it took a while, you know, it, 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 those days. And even now, although we're not talking about working, 10 hours a day, five days a week. I mean, I've never made records like that. Even with, let's say, Sarah, you know, it's just more relaxed. Plus, I'm also, I'm busier. I'm touring with my wife. Da, da, da. Yeah. Um, you know, back then, you know, because we're, we're doing the writing too. You know, it's like, there, there's a lot going on. It wasn't as though we had all the songs when we started. We probably had most of them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we'd have to go away and like write the songs and kind of figure it out, and cast it, this, that, and the other thing. And, what can I say about that record? I actually don't like the way it sounds, but I, I, I appreciate that. I think there's a certain freshness to it. Like there's a certain thing that it doesn't yeah. sound like everything else. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, that's going to dovetail back to this thing we were talking about in the beginning where, I mean, look, man, you don't always get it, but that's part of my, that's part of my motivation and DNA too. It's like, I, you know, you know, for better or worse, I try to put a little effort into not having these things I do sound like other things or particularly popular things or, you know, it's and sometimes it's a little bit of an amorphous, complicated dance to sort of navigate your way through it to find something that feels fresh. And you don't always get it. But I think the motivation to try to do that is probably pretty healthy. It has been for me. I suspect it would be healthy for a lot of people unless you're just really locked jawed into commercial music in which, and which is a skill set too, which is like, mm-hmm. man, I'm going to nail this formula for the eighth time. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to, you know, my publisher is going to send me $20 million. And like, I, I totally respect that. I just never, I didn't have that skill set. So why bother? So, um, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I just knew that I knew going in, I knew even in the demos that it was fresh and that was a plus and a minus because it wasn't, I mean, she got she got a deal pretty quickly, but I'll tell you, my core group of friends, some of whom I've named, and many other friends I had who were doing sessions and trying to climb the ladder of the New York record making scene, none of them got it. Really? 
So yeah, and, and so that record, and that was a bit anxiety producing for me. Do you mean while the record was being made, people were yeah, like, or even when it was know. done, I played it for some people, my friends, and I could just see the blank thing because <laughs> it didn't sound like anything, you know. And you know, it was your first record, and you're like, oh fuck, what me. have I done? Yeah, what have I done? I'm this. That's it. Yeah. No, but then I discovered there's a kind of universe outside. You know, New York's a pretty powerful gravitational pull. Or at least it was then, maybe not so much now. And uh, yeah, that there was a universe outside. God, all of these musicians in L.A. loved it. Musicians in Nashville loved it. And it was sort of like a door opened for me. It was like, oh, well, this is kind of more of the world I'm going to navigate. Yeah. Even though I'm still here in New York City, probably the last guy standing. But there you go. <laughs> right. And then as things went along with her, like the next record, Fat City, I don't know if if that was more complicated or, or I didn't, I didn't really have anything to do with that. I wrote uh two or three. So oh, okay. she, she, uh, we needed a break from each other. So she okay. went off. I think maybe I produced one track on it. Uh, I, I really didn't, I don't feel connected to that record at all. It's got nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, but then you did reconnect with her for other records. Yeah. Yeah. And then we finally sort of reconnected for what I suspect is our, for me anyway, our best record. Uh, and the name of it is a few smaller Paris. Yeah, and that was like yeah, that, five, four or five years later, I guess, or something like that. Right? Yeah, that was sort of like, uh, well, you know, in some ways, it was a decade after we did Steady On. Oh, it was that they, long? Okay. Yeah, it was sort of. I think she did a couple of records in between. We really didn't talk for five, six years. So. Oh wow. Okay. And so, how was the process like that for? Because that's a that's a really successful record too. Like, yeah. did did you? Uh, and that probably had some of her biggest hits or. D- did have her biggest hits, I- I'd imagine. Sonny came home and stuff. And actually, you mentioned that song too, uh, but earlier where you recorded that song. And I'm not familiar with that studio or that guy, unfortunately. Can you oh, tell you me? Oh, how- yeah. Uh, hopefully, some of your your podcast listeners will know. Yeah, Sear Sound. It's still there. Okay. Still so what's by... what's the deal with that place? It's just great, man. It's uh, it was a small room. Got it. It was a small room at the Hit Factory in the 70s. It's a very small 70s-ish studio. They have two rooms. They eventually built a second room, which I, ne- I never liked the second room. Really small, kind of dead sounding, um, in a good for me in a good way. Great Neve console. Walter had a sensational collection of microphones. That's, I actually learned that's how the combination of Walter and Kevin Kellen, I learned a lot about mics. Um, Walter was the engineer or the owner? Or no, whatever? Walter owned the studio. Okay. He didn't engineer, he owned the studio. He's a, well, if you go, I'm sure there's a, I'll send you a link when we're done. He's very, in New York, he's a very well-known character. Character, Like I say, he's no longer with us. He's, uh, people are still making great, great records there. People love working at Sear. It's just a vibe. So I spent a lot of time there. I would say mid 90s to early 2000s. And that's where we did, the Sunny Came Home record and probably did. That was also the first record. So ADATS had arrived and that was the first, and that was also the first record I decided I wanted to try engineering. Um, okay. Because uh, I, w- I would get sort of frustrated before that. and Frustrated with, with engineers, you mean? Not personally, but just like I recognized that I needed to have this, an engineering skill set, basically. Right. Not yeah. frustrated individuals. No, so I've worked with a lot of great engineers. No. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. I just kept hearing things in my head. And it's like I'm just wired. It's like this thing with instruments. Like I'm wired to want to learn and play a lot of instruments. I'm wired to, to want to engineer and mix. So um, to me, it's like, you know, what, what's the cliche? You know, it's another instrument. I mean, it's another skill. It's another way to make music and create music and craft mm-hmm. feeling and, and texture and stuff that I like and that we all like. Uh, so it was the first record I started to engineer a lot and I took and I had ADATs. And so I would make these little sub mixes from the 24 track, 24 track analog. This is pre-digital. Didn't, that was an analog record. Um, you know, and I did all the crazy shit people did back then where I would, so we had all the basic tracks and all the drums, and bass parts and 24 track analog. And then I would take these little sub mixes to my ADATs and I had a little workspace in the East Village. And I would work, you know, I would sort of, you know, work on my overdubs and we would do vocals there. And, uh, you know, okay. I would, uh, like I remember adding, like we cut Sonny Came Home, but it didn't have that mandolin intro. And when we cut it, I kept thinking like, man, this just needs a little something to start it. And I just picked up my mandolin and went ding, 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 ding. And some, I never in a million years thought this thing was going to be a hit. I thought, oh, well, this is kind of a groovy, little catchy little thing. But I never, I never, it wasn't operating from a place of let's, let's cut hits. Although I'm thrilled it was a hit. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man. So that's how I did that record. And then, you know, we would sort of bounce back what I did. Did you mix it too? No. Bob Clearmountain. So you hadn't quite got to the mixing stage. No, yet. no. Okay. Well, no, no, I've, 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 you know, I've been inspired and stolen from and been influenced by the best, you know, Bob Clearman mixed a bunch of my records in the late nineties, early two thousands. Kevin Killen has mixed some of my records and, you know, I sort of paid attention, you know, yep. and then uh, eventually I gave it a shot before computers, even when it was still on a, my first record was on a, the what series needs. I can't remember. Uh, it's, it's all going now. But uh, and then once I went to computers, it's just for me, it was just natural because when I'm producing, I'm, I'm basically mixing anyway. I mean, I'm mixing right. 80 80 percent of it. Then I just go that next level to really clean up. Mostly, you know, I don't do a lot, man. It's mostly reductive EQing, and you know, it's just shaping and clarifying. Yeah. And the co-writing thing is really interesting to me. You you seem to co-write basically with everybody on every project that you do. Is that like a requirement for you or is it just like you don't you don't feel like you can dig in in a big enough way unless you're you've got a some skin in the game as far as like the 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 material goes or what's the how does that 
work that you end up co-writing almost on a, every project? Like you said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. It's not a requirement. That just sounds horrible. I would never in a million years say to a prospective artist, look, it's a requirement. You have to write with me. No, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's the way, I mean, that's why I think I'm slightly weird in the record production thing. I kind of backed into it because I'm a player and a writer. Yeah. And the, and the record production was the net, for me, the natural extension of being a player, slight multi-instrumentalist and a songwriter. Mm-hmm. with a kind of arranger sensibility. Well, that, to me, made it easy, not easy, but it seems natural to want to make records. Do I like writing music with artists? Yeah, I love it. Do I like recording music I've written? Yeah, I love it. It's really fulfilling. It's really exciting. Do I have to just do that? Absolutely. Definitely not. I love arranging other people's and producing other people's stuff, too. It's just a balance, just uh-huh. finding it. You know, I happen to be married to a great songwriter, so we yeah. do a lot of songwriting. But there are even times where she's, she gets sick of my shit. You know, she wants to go off and write with other people. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. no, man, it's just, I think it's just part of my thing. You know, it's like, I, I like it. I mean, you know, it's pretty satisfying to write a good tune. Has that process, say with Sean Colvin, who it sounds like you've been writing with since the 80s, uh, has that changed at all? Or do you guys just sit down and it's like 1985 all over again? no. If if it only was, yeah. No, Sean and I actually, we haven't made a record for a while now. Yeah, it's we're, been a we're, while, we're, we're friends. Yeah, we're friends. Um, and we're talking, and we've made some stabs at writing some stuff, and it's not coming as easy as it used to. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I think there's valid reasons why. One is part of it, once again, to fold it back to some of the first things we talked about, which is like, you know, my thing with her is like, well, why? I don't want to do anything that we've already of me. It's like, uh, I, at least I want to start from a place where I don't want to do what we've already done. Now, do I want to get like black and white and rigid about that? No, no. It sort of glides into something that feels that's familiar of something we've done fine. But I felt like, I mean, all right, do you want to talk about this? I mean, this is the stuff I think about. So it's true. Like for me, what I would like to do with Sean and she... We'll, we'll see if she can go there with us is I think the one thing I haven't done is like, I want to make a record that really, really showcases what an incredible singer she is. Mm, yeah. And so for me, it sort of means writing a certain kind of tune that gives her the space to be as deeply evocative and open as a singer as possible and not hem it in with a lot of pop music or folk or Americana conventions that, which is, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's just, I want, I want to start from a place like, man, I just want the first thing people to say when they hear it is like, Jesus, you're, you, you sound great. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's complicated. It's a whole big aesthetic thing. It's just, yeah. the, this is the, the downside of having done it for a long time. Yeah, right. You start thinking, you start going over into different alleys and aesthetics and like you start getting kind of existential about the whole thing. Like, but having said that, fingers crossed, we we've, we've written one thing that I love uh-huh. anyway, a couple of things. She's written a couple of things on her own that are beautiful and, yeah. you know, so fingers crossed, we'll see. A project like that sticks out to me too, that you did was the William Bell one, which is super interesting. And again, like you did a bunch of co-writing or writing for it. Uh, I'd imagine that that was, 
like I could be just guessing, or I'm definitely guessing here, but that process, was that a little tricky? Like being able to, I guess, find a voice that worked for him and also like just convincing him in the first place that he shouldn't do a bunch of like shitty R&B songs from (laughs) some other era. uh, So just tell me a bit about that project because that was, that's a super cool record, but it's, I can, I, I mean, I've talked to Joe Henry, I've done stuff with Joe Henry and, you know, he sort of has kind of a similar thing with the Solomon Burke record that he, that he did. And I know that that record was problematic for him, you know, artistically and just like from a producer's point of view, was the William Bell thing tricky in some of those ways too? Here's what I'll say. It was the most joyous record I've ever made. Okay. And I don't say this at all. I so value all the collaborators and records I've made. But in some ways, William's record is my favorite record I've ever made. Interesting. Now, why is it my favorite record? Because I feel in some ways it's the most me. So selfishly, it's my favorite record. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, before I started doing all this kind of pop Americana, you know, I mean, I started before people even called anything Americana. So, you know, I don't know what it is that I do. Some sort of creative pop, folky country, you know, I don't know, man, rootsy thing. I played in R&B bands in New York. If you didn't know how to play R&B, you didn't work. Right. So I have a deep, deep love for classic soul music and R&B. And I particularly have a deep love, you know, for Southern soul and R&B. And I Mm -hmm. was fully, fully aware of who William was when the call came. And I was super excited. And it's also one of the rare times where I knew immediately what it was that I wanted to do. Um, Did they approach you about producing and writing or was it more like he's got songs? Yeah, I've been asked this question. This is so interesting. And I got to say this the right way. Yeah, I mean, they weren't against me writing and, and but they had been sort of fishing around for the right thing, the right producer. And, you know, I'm not an obvious choice here, by the way. And, you know, William had some tunes and he had been doing the co-writing thing. They'd been sending William around. And, you know, I hated all the tunes. Hate is maybe. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Well, it's not that I hated them. They were the thing that you described, which is when you make a soul record of like, particularly a 60s artist. And it's such a powerful language. And the language of any of these classic rootsy American things. Or, I mean, even the Beatles, it's like you start going down the road of the heavy gravitational pull, the magnet of the magnificence of when these things were original and vibrant being created and the cliches and the horn lines and the grooves and the little guitar double stop notes that we all love. I love, you love, everybody I know loves. It's, you have to have an internal navigator in which you don't default to regurgitating shit just because you love it or you know it works. To me, it makes for lifeless music. You're never going to do what they did 50 years ago. It's never going to be as compelling. It's never going to be as soulful. And it's, I don't like it when I hear it. I'm completely uninterested when I hear it. And I prayed that I wouldn't fall prey to it. So I act all cocky, like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Well, I knew I didn't want, what I really did was I knew what I didn't want. (laughs) I didn't want to do that. And then, okay, then what the fuck are you going to do? So, and I had some ideas. So uh, a lot of guitar stuff I play when I'm just sitting by myself falls into a kind of soul guitar thing. So I had, I had, 
already song bits and ideas and little sequences mm-hmm. that you'd come up with with him in mind or that you just yeah, had to, with him and without him yeah, yeah. Like, i was ready for this record man. like i can't tell you really okay yeah williams record was the most joyous record i've ever made it, it was just like i couldn't wait to work on it so yeah unlike uh who did you reference joe henry like no i loved it also williams a beautiful cat so i'm sure Solomon. i've heard stories about solomon burke doesn't sound like he was as perhaps not as gracious a presence um william is just a beautiful cat so part of it for me was also and he's very reserved and i knew i had to win him over and i just said well look man just come up to new york for two days we'll know in 48 hours whether there's anything to do man we just hung out talked i already had a couple of ideas i started playing guitar i could tell he liked my guitar playing because i can kind of sit with an acoustic guitar and kind of create a soul feeling about stuff and um i just i don't want to say i seduced him but i I think we connected i I actually love the man i talked to him on a regular basis and that was a big part of it and i also talked to him a lot about his life because i knew what i didn't want to do was you know oh baby let's get ready to party you know like like i knew (laughs) No, it's like, well, Jesus, he was 76 at the time. And it's like, well, what are you going to sing about at 76? So that was, I've said this before in another interview. Yeah, I knew immediately the lyrics had to be, they couldn't be bullshit. Like the lyrics had to have some, like a great country song has to have a yep. great lyric. And so, you know, I just spent some time with the lyric. I, I have a long standing songwriting partnership with my friend Mark Cohn, who happens yep. to be a lyricist. And, and the only part that was challenging and i say this with all respect is that william thinks of himself as a writer and he's written four i could pick four songs that are just extraordinary one of the best blues songs of all time uh born under bad sign one of my one of the great one of the greatest soul ballads of all time everybody loves a winner Mm -hmm. when you lose you lose alone you don't miss your water to your well run drives william's written some great heavy heavy fucking songs yeah like um, it had been a while since he'd been challenged lyrically. Okay. In fact, he probably hadn't been challenged in decades. Yeah. And so I, the, the, the challenge was the challenge was how to challenge William and be graceful and, and involve him in the journey of where I knew it had to go. Cause he wasn't, he wasn't sure. <laughs> okay. Were you leaning on him to, to write most of the lyrics? Well, no, but he, he needed to feel involved. Yeah. It'd be easy for me to go off and write the songs myself or write the songs with, my buddy Mark Cohn, or, or I wrote a song with Roseanne, you know, she wrote a great lyric. I tried to write a gamble and huff tune about it. And, uh, no, but no, I wanted William to be involved. It's William Bell. It's William yeah. freaking Bell. Yeah. It's like, no, I needed William to be involved. And sometimes that was tricky because a lot of time had passed since he'd been gone. He had not gone to the level that I was going, trying to go. Right. I was going through I mean, humbly, I say this humbly. I was really trying to go for the real thing, man. I was yeah. just trying to go for it. So, boom, there you go. Great. So, au contraire, I love that record. My favorite. Did he, record. Did he bring stuff to you that you had to be like, this isn't going to cut it? Uh, well, I, we didn't, I didn't bother with any of the tunes that they sent. He was involved with some of that stuff. I took a title he had and I rewrote it. Okay. Uh, and then he had, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just all me and Mark. Like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not stupid. No, I, William and I wrote two, if not three songs just together, like on mm-hmm. the floor. Yeah. 
And uh, one of them, he he had the initial lyric idea, and yeah, we wrote when well, we wrote like three, maybe three or four songs together like that. You know, and the rest okay. I probably wrote with Mark or wrote on my own or wrote one with Rose. Or, yeah. yeah, no, we, we wrote together, too. Yeah, okay. I just knew I had to pull it to something other than pure soul music cliches, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, right. I totally get it. Right. Um, so with, with Roseanne, um, you've obviously been co-writing with her a long time and uh, making records with her for probably 20 years now, I think, right? Rules of Travel is probably the first one. Is that? 30. 30 years? Yeah, 30 years. What's the first record you worked with her on? Uh, it's called The Wheel. Oh, okay. So Pretty good record. What's the, like, what's the history there? Were you guys married at that time when you started working together? No. Okay. The, the relationship evolved as the music evolved as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, she, uh, yeah, we fell in love, you know. I, yeah. I, married, I really married quite an exceptional human being, so. Yeah. It took me, um, I, I was pretty thick, so it took me, uh, took me a little while to realize it because I'm based basically a lunkhead, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, she's, I married an extraordinary human being. Yeah. How long have you guys been married for? We've been married. This will be 28 years this year, but we've been together for 30. This year will be 31. We've been together. So. Wow. Okay. So substantial yeah. period of time yeah. of your life. Yeah. Um, and has the process changed for you guys as far as making yeah. records goes? Yeah, I don't. I uh, I can't listen to any of the early records I made with Roseanne. I feel like I did a terrible job. I don't think I really. Was, yeah, yeah. This is complicated. I can't believe I'm talking about all this stuff. You're like uh, Barbara Walters. You're getting all this shit out of me, man. Yeah, man. Uh, where does that change for you? Like, is there a line in the sand where it's like, oh, suddenly these records I yes. can listen to them? Where yes. Where is that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something shifted in my production or my record making around 2010 ish. Okay. And it started with, or maybe slightly before, I can't, I'm bad with dates. I made a record with Roseanne of cover tunes called The List. The List. And, Which uh, is a cra crazy project. Like, so that yeah, was a list. Yeah, crazy project. It was a lot of fun. It actually was a lot of fun to do. And, Am I right in understanding that that was a list that her dad gave her of like the great yeah. songs of all time? Oh my God. Yeah. I did. And, and it was sort of the same thing with William's record, which is like, well, how are we going to F them up so that they... <laughs> feel soulful they're not just cliches of the versions that everybody else has done la -di -da. but there was just something shifted uh, i think part of it was i don't know i mean it's not black and white and i don't know how interesting this is to anybody but it's really interesting is it I yeah something just shifted in me where i just made a move towards simplicity and it was a good move for me it was the right move for me to do it at the time um and it was, what's the least amount I can do to convey the most? And it was just a slightly different way. I was tired of what I was doing, and I wasn't particularly liking the results. Like, I didn't really care for that record, Real Sotel. I just feel like, what the fuck? You're doing all this stuff, thinking you're trying to be hip, or these weird sounds. And uh, I just got and sort of also broke with any interest in weird sounds or lo-fi or hi-fi or mm -hmm. trying to be hip or trying to pay, pay attention to anything other than what was in my heart and my head and um and it was all involved in just let's just move toward being simpler and i think for me anyway my record since then for me they've gotten better i think they're better i don't know you know it's up to everybody else you know and they've done better 
uh, unfortunately, it's all coincided with, you know, with the de-evolution of the yeah. music business. So, yeah. Um, but they've all won grant, you know, I've won a lot more Grammys in the last 10 or so years than I did before. You know, they, they, I just think I found a better, I just found a better way to do it. And part of it is that I started playing more as engineering more, I was mixing them. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to be more concise and just, you know, find the right bits that really worked. And that simplicity uh, that you talk about, was that partly coming out because, you're like approaching all these classic country songs that were sort of, a lot of them were super iconic as they were. And I, I understand how hard that is to approach some of those songs without feeling yeah. like, oh my God, what are we, like, why are we doing this? Well, certainly that's a good, that's a valid question. Why are we doing this? So I, I look at it, um, how do I look at it? Well, it's what I said. There's never any point in redoing something someone's already done really well, right? So there's never any point in that. Like, why would you do that? It's never, it's just doomed to failure. It's zero sum way of approaching making a record. And then you're left with, well, what can you do that's interesting and compelling and that could retain people's interest in it and surprise them and maybe infuse it with a little life, but at the same time, try to sound, dare I say, timeless, mm-hmm. where it doesn't feel pegged to the moment or pegged to the technology or pegged to how much compression or reverb or delay people are using at this yeah. particular time or this drum sound, or, you know, it's like, that's the thing that changed for me is like, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where it's like, I just tried to go back to drum sounding like drums, you know, <laughs> you know, I lost interest in anything other than can you arrange this in a way that's still really cool and exciting and interesting to hear mm-hmm. and take you on a journey. But, is trying to stay simple and musical. Um, so for me, it's like, it's, 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 it's arranging. And for me, that kind of arranging is like songwriting. It's just pulling on your songwriting tunes, which is, well, how can you take a song everybody's heard a million times and twist it in a way yeah. where it sounds new, but you retain the song. And so there's a, there's a great, I've mentioned this in interviews. There's a, if you ever have the time and can find it, you know, there's, I like Nelson Riddle quite a bit. So I, I, also, I also have incredibly eclectic tastes. You know, like uh, there's just tons of orchestral composers I really love. Copeland, Ives, Samuel Barber, Stravinsky. I mean, it's just endless. Ravel, you know, and there's film composers I love. Bernard Herrmann, mm-hmm. one who I really love. And, uh, you know, I love Nelson. There's one particular Frank Sinatra record. Uh, I think it's Only the Lonely or Only for the Lonely. It's just, to me, it's like operatic. It's amazing. The arrangements are off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so he wrote this book on arranging. So I bought it. So I go, oh, let's check it out. You know, and basically, basically the bottom line is for stuff like that for me is like the chords, the groove are up for grabs and the melody's not and the lyric isn't. You got to honor the melody and you got to mm-hmm. honor the lyric. And then at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to look for a real feeling behind it. So how can you mess with the harmony or the rhythm and find a way, the arrangement or find a way to do it or get rid of the chords? Or there's a million, I have a million strategies. Oh, there's five chords here. We're just going to use one chord or, you know, it's like there's a million ways to think about it. And, um, you know, uh, and if you love music as much as I do, I suspect as much as you do and you pay attention, it just, as I've said in the past, it just sort of becomes part of your toolbox of, oh. God, I remember that cadence from that arrangement of Willow Weep for Me by Frank Sinatra and Nelson Riddle. Man, can I use that little cadence right here? Well, I did on uh, Roseanne. You know, like that's how it works for me. You know, steel subtly, gracefully, but steel, right? Yeah. 
And so, so are you and Roseanne making another record right now, or going to be? Well, or? Uh, we're not. Uh, we should. We should. We just started to talk about. It. Of course, I haven't produced anything for a couple of years, and now it feels like I'm overwhelmed a little bit with possibilities. But no, what Roseanne and I have been doing for the last year, really, honest, honestly, for the last five years on and off, is that we've written the score to a musical that we hope. What's that called? It's called, okay, here we go. I guess we'll talk about, we talked about my soul record. I guess it's time to talk about this. Although <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't jinx. I haven't really talked about this because I don't know if you've ever been involved in musical theater. It's really freaking complicated. I have not. Lots of egos, lots of stuff. Really? Okay. Oh man, it's crazy. And music isn't, it's quite often the lowest, yeah, wrong little ladder. I know that from working in film stuff and TV stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, it's very frequently an afterthought. Film. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very, very similar. Sometimes it feels like I'm just working on a jingle. Yeah, that's true. Um, we were approached by a producer and a book writer like five or six years ago to write the score for a musical version of a film from the '70s called Norma Ray, and oh. it's about. Um, unionization of a textile mill in North Carolina in the mid seventies, not your usual fodder for musical theater. Um, so it's been a long journey. Uh, I won't bore you with all the details, although literally I could write a book about it. It's been that interesting and that wild with triumphs and tragedy. But the bottom line is we did our first full cast choreography, full band that did the arrangements. We did like six, performances in a small space for basically theater world and backers and stuff. And it went, went pretty well. And we've got some good offers. I probably shouldn't say them. I don't know how that works, but we've got as, as, as far as trying to get a trajectory toward Broadway, which is commercial theater. Yeah. We're on the right path. So we're like one step removed. So it could still all fall apart, man, because it's pretty crazy, but theoretically a year from now, We'll have an eight-week like production in the biggest sort of non-commercial theater in New York, and then if that goes well, that's exciting. You know, well, yeah, I try not to get too excited. Like I say, dude, it's when I so, say complicated. I'll so you, it, like, you guys wrote the music and you arranged it. Are you performing it as well, or do you just sit back no, and watch it all? No, go no, down? no. It's been an interesting experience to find musicians and stuff to not know. It's Back. Okay, I don't want to have anything to do with performing it. No, I wrote the music. Roseanne wrote the lyrics. And we have like an eight-person band. I have a wonderful musical director. And it took a while to find the language I was looking for, which is this kind of haunted Appalachia thing with an overlay of church, black of black and white church, actually. And uh, uh, But I found them. I found a great crew of your professional local 802 musicians here in New York. Yeah, I bet. And really, yeah, these guys are great. None of them, except for the bass player, I hadn't worked with any of them before, and they're all wonderful. Very lucky to have me. Yeah, it's a totally different experience to just sit there and listen to what you've written and be played. So, wow, that's that's quite something. Huge project, though. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. And are you going to tour solo for your record or anything, or is that no, not man, really in the cards? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Know. I was asked. Uh, I don't. I was asked for a couple about a couple of things. I don't know, man. Maybe, I mean, Ro- maybe Roseanne there. Cash needs an opening act. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I get a lot of space to play when we yeah. do a duo. Like, it's pretty fluid. So it's like, I get to play a lot. I, I don't know, Steve. It's like, I'm not, 
you know, you should part It'd of be this, cool, man. I, I don't know if I'm an artist, capital A. You know what I mean? Like, I just this was just music that was in me. I wanted to get out. We'll see. Maybe I'll, that'll be the next challenge. Can I go do a gig? Oh my god, it would be really painful to do a gig by myself. If I could have at least one or two friends with me to like yeah. back me, that might be cool. Yeah, right on. Well, um, thank you, John, for taking all this time with me. Well, man, yeah, we went uh, we went longer and deeper than I thought we would. We went didn't deep. ask about gear, and I'm um, sort of really impressed. <laughs> I right. love gear. I just don't really want to talk about it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I hope to see you again. The last time I saw you was here. You you were doing that Johnny Cash show with Rye and and Joaquim and, oh. and Roseanne. That was awesome. I loved that. Yeah, we. Did. I love Rye. He's a massive influence on me. So was really quite an experience to get to play the music with him. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. All right. All right. Down the road. I'll talk. All right. See ya. Later on. All right, folks. That was my conversation with John Leventhal. I sure enjoyed speaking with him and finding out the scoop on all things to do with his latest shenanigans and all of his past recording experiences as well. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We shall see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.